Okay, let's go over the announcements. First of all, we have our men's prayer breakfast this coming Saturday morning. And in this uh, primary season, which a lot of people still haven't figured out yet, uh, this, the important election for those in congressional dis- in any congressional district in Texas is probably going to be determined this week. I mean, this election. And on next next week, I think it's the 19th, on Monday is when early voting begins. It's either Monday or Tuesday. So be prepared for that. But in District 2, where we are, it's a traditionally conservative district. And so there are nine candidates on the Republican side, and one of those will probably be the winner in November. But we can't take that uh, for granted. In order to be able to make a wise decision when we vote, we need to get to know the candidates. I don't know. I've only met two of them, but I thought it would be good for all of us to meet both of them. And Dan Crenshaw was here last month to speak to the men's group on Saturday morning at the men's prayer breakfast. And this coming Saturday morning, uh, Kathleen Wall will be speaking to the men's group. And so be prepared to ask her some good questions to flesh out some of her uh, views and uh, positions. Also, the Chafer Conference begins in a month, a month from now, four weeks from now. And so we'll be asking for volunteers and for people to sign up helping in uh, various areas. If you have any questions, please ask uh, Pam Richards. She is coordinating um, the volunteers. Also, on the Museum of the Bible trip, I do have a very positive announcement. Unfortunately, if you waited, you'll miss it because we've had to close out any new uh, anybody new coming and signing up. But as of this afternoon, we have determined a that at 2.15 on that Thursday, uh, we will have an opportunity to hear from uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz. And so that we'll have a, a briefing from him on that afternoon. I've been wrestling with getting this appointment nailed down for about a month, uh, two months, I haven't heard from anybody. And I was in an event Sunday night. So I was able to write an email Monday morning and said, after my conversation with Senator Cruz last night, that always gets the wheels moving. And so we got everything resolved uh, today. So if you are going on that trip, and you get have received the form that we sent out the other day. Ignore that. We're sending out a new one because we need to put a checkbox in there for those who will be attending the uh, briefing from te- uh, Senator Cruz on that on that Thursday at 2:15 in the afternoon. So uh, that's the only only change. The Israel trip still has plenty of room, and almost every day I'm hearing of new people who are giving it serious consideration. Right now we have. Uh, 21 definite people who have signed up. We have two or three that are just about ready to uh, finalize their decision to go. And then we have two or three more that are very close to it as well. So uh, we may have between, I'm hoping we'll have between 25 and 30 go on the trip. And I think it will be an outstanding, an outstanding trip. So that's our announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will take a few moments to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. I hope that you have been enjoying your uh, walk with the Lord, your ongoing rapport with the Lord, reading the scriptures, uh, coming to understand more fully what he has revealed uh, to you. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together to study your word, to reflect upon you, to come to an understanding of your plan and your purpose, that our confidence in your word may be strengthened, that the eyes of our soul will be enlightened to the truth of your word, that you would strengthen our souls for the battle that we face every single day, battles between the ears, battles in our mind, our thinking learning to focus upon you, carrying out, fulfilling the resolve that we have made to walk with you. Father, we pray that you would uh, just strengthen us tonight as we study your word. Help us to understand what is being taught, to trace things through the scripture as we've learned, that we may see how you have decreed the end from the beginning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in Second Samuel chapter 5, 2 Samuel chapter 5, and tonight we're really looking at two different things, part of wrapping up what we studied last time in the fourth chapter, or excuse me, in the third chapter, I think I typed in five, I did that, I, I typed in on the title slide five, one through twelve, and it should be four, one through twelve, you thought I was skipping a chapter there, but I'm not. Okay, we got that fixed. All right, we have David, who is a descendant of Judah. This is where we left off last time. I want to go look at some fascinating things there related to that prophecy. And then how David faces his problem here, and that is that God has made a promise to him, a more specific promise than he makes to church-age believers. We do not have promises of that kind of specificity. They are general promises related to God's provisions and God's uh, power in our lives and what God is going to do in our lives for every believer, but not the kind of specificity with David that he's going to put David on the throne of Israel and he will rule over uh, the United Kingdom. Now, last time at the at the uh, end of the session, I played a short video, about five minutes of a video that uh, archaeologist Joel Kramer did on Hebron, which is where 
David's kingdom is at this point. For the first seven and a half years of his rule, he ruled over the kingdom of Judah in the south, the only area of the 12 tribes that had a measure of stability. And every morning when he got up, he would see the tomb of his forefathers, the tomb of the patriarchs. And this takes place in these initial chapters that are sort of a preface to his rule in chapters 2 through um, down to about the middle of chapter 5, down to 5-6. That covers the uh, this preface to David's rule. And as I pointed out last time, and as Joel pointed out in the film that we watched, is that this is significant because of what David is reminded of on a daily basis as he looks out across the valley to Hebron. Now, Hebron's a large city now, but then it was not occupied, and he's looking probably across a shallow valley there to the other side of that of that valley to a hillside, and there would have been some sort of marker there for the graves of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as their wives, Abraham's wife, Sarah, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, and Jacob's wife, Leah, who Leah was his first wife, Rebekah his second wife, who was the one that he thought he was marrying at the beginning. But it was Leah who is the mother of, of uh, Judah. And Hebron is the capital of the tribal area of Judah. And in Genesis chapter 49, we have a remarkable prophecy that God has made through, um, through Jacob about Judah. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. And we're going to look at this prophecy in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Because in many ways, this is being fulfilled. Parts of this are being fulfilled in David. And ultimately, the fulfillment of this is in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Messiah. So I want to read through the prophecy, and then we will talk about it. In Genesis 49.8, this whole chapter, what we have is that um, Jacob is, is giving these prophecies, these oracles, about his sons and the destinies of those that come from them, their tribal futures. Genesis 49.8 Jacob says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine 
and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, what's going on here? This is an interesting passage, an interesting prophecy. We think of the Lion of Judah, but that doesn't really come out of this. The imagery of the lion does, but that phrase, the Lion of Judah, comes out of a revelation. And so let's work our way through this prophecy. In this prophecy, Jacob is foretelling the messianic fulfillment, the fulfillment of the messianic promise that will come through the line of Judah. In this oracle, he emphasizes the preeminence of this messianic king and the preeminence of the lineage through Judah. And he emphasizes four things about this coming king. The first thing he emphasizes is that that his brothers will praise him and bow down to him. Now, if you recall a little bit about the story of Joseph, the coat of many colors, and his brothers, the one thing that you should recall from that is that these brothers were competitive. They were jealous of each other. They were especially jealous of the favoritism that Jacob showed to uh, Joseph. And they weren't exactly paragons of spiritual virtue. In fact, the problem that they had, especially Judah, because Judah's the one who uh, ends up having a, a little fling with, the, um, uh, with his daughter-in-law who's been disguised as a prostitute. And her husband had died, and she was left childless, and he's, uh, he doesn't care about uh, raising up a child, uh, uh, her getting marrying the other brother through levered marriage, and raising up a child. And so she disguises herself in order to put him in a bad position and to force him to recognize his failures of leadership. So Judah is certainly not a picture of spiritual virtue. In fact, he's married a Canaanite woman. And what happens is he lives a life that is revealed in the scripture to exemplify the fact that these sons of Jacob are not following the dictates that God gave to the forefathers, and that is to live separately from the Canaanites, but that they are just completely assimilating to the Canaanites. And what we learn from observing the end of, 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 of Genesis is that this is why God removed them from the land and brought them down to Egypt where there was such rank prejudice against Semites that they were isolated almost in a ghetto in, in Goshen so that they would not be in the presence of the Egyptians. The Egyptians did not want to be anywhere around them. They didn't intermarry with them or anything like that. And that allowed... Uh, that's the early or the period between Genesis and Exodus allowed the nation uh, to grow from about 70 people who went down with Jacob to somewhere around 3 million uh, over this period of a little over 400 years. And this, this prophecy at the end of Genesis focuses on how God is going to bless them. So that blessing really has nothing to do with any. Th- think uh, favorable on their part 
but it has to do with God's plan. So this takes us back to the fact that the, the doctrine that we studied last time, and that is the sovereignty of God, and that this first section in, in Samuel, Second Samuel is emphasizing God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan is that he has promised the kingship to David, that he will rule over the united kingdom, the 12 tribes of Israel, and that God will put him on the throne in his timing, his way. David has waited for 10 to 15 years to be promoted to the kingship. He has been faithful in his walk with God. He's had opportunities to take Saul's life, but he refused to lift his hand against God's anointed. That's an important thing to remember in light of what happens in chapter 4. He recognizes the divine chain of command, and he recognizes that, that he is not to wrongly take advantage of the of the one who is in authority by taking his life so that he can then assume the throne. He must realize God's plan in God's timing and God's way. And so he is brought from the, the wilderness, as it were, and brought now into an initial stage of kingship over the tribe of Judah, waiting for God to give him everything. And, and there's this civil war that's, that's been taking place. The Philistines control most of the territory in the north now. Abner has finally decided to somehow give some legitimacy to Ishbosheth, the only surviving son of, of Saul, and that he's going to raise, uh, make Ishbosheth the king in the last two and a half years or so of that seven and a half year period when, when David is the uh, king in the south. And and David still refuses to take advantage of the situation and try to make himself king. He is going to wait on the Lord. And that's the principle for us is that we have to wait on the Lord. It's going to be God's way, God's timing, and we have to wait on the Lord and not push things, wait for God to promote us, because if God doesn't promote us, we're not really promoted. And so God is going to promote Judah through his descendants. And so the first part of this prophecy in Genesis 49.8 is, uh, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. And then in the last, time, the last line, it echoes that and says, your father's children shall bow down before you. So the emphasis here is that Judah's line will be preeminent over the other uh, the other brothers, and that rulership will come through his line. This is in verses uh, 48a and c. Now, when I put a, b, c, d after the first reference, that refers to breaking down a verse into, into its uh, component parts. And so what we really see here is three lines, three state, different statements in this verse. So the first line is A, second line would be designated B, and the third line designated C. Sometimes you have as many as four different statements, and so you'll see references to some verse like 12D. Sometimes it's just two sections, A and B. And that's that's how you distinguish these specific uh, lines from one another. So in this section, what we have is this preeminence of Judah's line, his brothers will praise his descendants. Now, this same language is used of praise and bowing down somewhat earlier. Before 
Joseph is sold into slavery. What endeared him so much to his brothers? Do you remember? He had a couple of dreams that God gave him, and those dreams indicated that his brothers would bow down to him. And so he was all excited about that as a young man. Y'all are going to be submissive to me. Look what God's going to do. He's going to make me somebody. And they didn't quite appreciate that. So uh, along with the fact that he was uh, Jacob's favorite, they decided they would sell him into slavery. Well, one of those dreams is recorded in uh, Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10. And there we read, Then he dreamed still another dream. This was the second of the two dreams. And told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Now, in Jacob's response, we get the interpretation of the dream. There's the sun and the moon and the stars. The sun is Jacob, his father. The moon is Rachel, his mother, and the stars are his brothers. And that's important because this same imagery is going to be picked up when we get to the last book of the Bible. This is the first book, and we go to the last book of the Bible, and there is a rehearsal in Revelation 12, 1, of, this, uh, of the history of Israel, in 12, 1 and 2, and we're just going to look at 12, 1, we read, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, sun, moon, and stars. Where does that imagery come from? That imagery comes right out of Genesis chapter 30, uh, 37. And so we understand this, that this is representing Israel. And so the woman is Israel, and the sun and the moon represent or come out of Genesis 37. That's Jacob and Rachel. The moon, I mean, excuse me, and the 12 stars of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that shows, isn't that that's fascinating how the, the Bible interprets itself. And you have to understand these Old Testament images if you're going to understand the prophecies that come up in, um, in Revelation. And so the same wording that is used in Genesis uh, 37, 10 is also uh, alluded to in Genesis 49, um, 49, uh, 8 and showing that they will bow down to, to, in this case, Judah. So initially, that first prophecy given to Joseph is fulfilled when his brothers come to Egypt, and they bow down to Joseph, who is now the premier or the viceroy, the second in command under the pharaoh in, in Egypt. So they have to bow down to, to, to him. And so that is initially fulfilled in him, but eventually... That is going to be fulfilled when that leadership shifts from Joseph to Judah. And it's going to be the tribe of Judah that receives that obedience, that uh, bowing down, that, uh, that uh, submission from the other 
other brothers. So that first point, uh, the brothers will praise and bow down to Joseph, I mean, excuse me, to Judah. The second aspect of this future king is that he will have power over Israel's enemies. Uh, this is illustrated with the imagery of the lion that's there, and this is the middle phrase in Genesis 49, 8b. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This indicates that the ruler will also have power and he will defeat the enemies of Israel and protect them from foreign enemies. That's one of the primary responsibilities of any government is to protect the citizens from foreign enemies and also to protect from criminals within, uh, within the nation. And so this emphasizes uh, that, that power. This is then used and expanded in the imagery of a lion in Genesis 49.9. Judah is a lion's whelp. That means that Judah is a lion, as the, the descendant of a lion, and then the line from the prey, my son, you have gone up. In other words, there's prey. There's been, uh, he has killed his prey. He is in a position of power. And then he will uh, bow down and he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who will rouse him? Who's going to disturb a sleeping lion? We have an English proverb to let sleeping dogs lie. How much more is it true that we should let sleeping lions lie and not rouse them? So this speaks of his power, and it speaks of his, of his position. Now, ultimately, what this should remind us of is that when the Messiah comes and takes his position, according to uh, Psalm 2.9, he will have to defeat the enemies, the kings of the earth. Psalm 2 is a uh, prophetic psalm, a prophetic messianic psalm that we've studied many times. Looks forward to a time when the people, in verse two, verse 1, the kings of the earth, in verse 2, the rulers of the earth will take counsel together and take their stand against Yahweh and against his Mashiach. So there's the first two persons of the Trinity there. And they want to rebel against them. And this is a picture probably of what is taking place during the tribulation period, but it will also be true in the millennial period because in the millennium, remember, there will be as many as the sands of the sea that will revolt against God and his Messiah at the end of the uh, millennial kingdom. And so uh, God will scoff at them. This is, I believe, at the end of the tribulation. And he refers to the fact that he has already installed his king upon Zion, his holy mountain. And he has made this decree that the, that the Messiah is his son. And he says, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth is your possession. And that is given during the uh, millennial kingdom. But because of the carnality, the sin nature that is in those that, that are born during the millennial kingdom, not all of them will submit to the rulership of the Messiah. 
And so he will have to rule them uh, with harshly, and that's described in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That is not describing what takes place during the tribulation. That describes what takes place during the, uh, during the millennial kingdom. And so you see this same sort of imagery here of the power of the lion who will uh, exercise his power over his enemies. Uh, from the uh, 8b, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Now, this imagery of a lion as, as the uh, Messianic tribe of Judah is picked up in Numbers 24.9. This is one of those prophecies of Balaam. Uh, Balaam, who's a false prophet, but God tells him he can't prophesy falsely, so he's going to have to put, prophesy the words that God gives him. And he makes an allusion to the Messiah in a prophecy in Ver- Numbers 24.9 that picks up on this same language. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. This is talking in context of a future ruler of Israel. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? See, that's the, see the similarity in language to uh, Genesis 49.9? You have bowing down, you have uh, lying down like a lion, you have who shall rouse him. And then he says, blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. So this is all part of this chain of messianic prophecies leading up to, of course, the first coming of Christ. The title of the Lion of the tribe of Judah comes out of a scene in heaven in Revelation 5.5. 5. This immediately precedes the beginning of the uh, seal judgments in the tribulation period. Uh, there's this heavenly scene. The Father's on the throne. He has a scroll. Uh, John is there witnessing the angels. They're saying, who can take the scroll? Who can open the scroll? The scroll's the title deed to the earth. And so they search high and low, and they can't find anyone. And then lo and behold, here comes the Lion of Judah to take the scroll. He's the only one qualified to take this scroll and to go and take ownership of the earth and establish his kingdom. And so we read, Do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. See that connection between the lion of Judah and David, the the king in the Davidic covenant? The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So what we see as a result of that is a third thing that's brought out in the prophecy in Genesis 49.10, and that is that the future king will be preeminent over all human royalty. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him, who does the hymn refer? Shiloh. To him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, this is a very difficult passage to interpret. If you're working with the Hebrew, it is, it's got several problems. First of all, you have 
an original consonantal text. That means original Hebrew had no vowel points. No vowels were indicated, just, just consonants. And so when vowels were inserted, there were a couple of different ways the vowels were put in that could mean different things. There was a lack of certainty as to exactly how to translate this word uh, Shiloh. And so there were four basic ways to understand what Shiloh comes. I'll bet most of you have thought of Shiloh as a proper name or as another title for Jesus. I won't ask you to raise your hand because you would be wrong. But that is a typical and a popular understanding of this from looking at uh, some translations. And the King James would be, would be one of them. So here is a list of four different ways in which uh, this is understood. First of all, the term Shiloh could be a proper name. If you change it a little bit, revocalize it, that means to make, put different vowels there, and instead of an H, a H, which is very similar to an M, okay, the only difference in Hebrew between the, the, the H and the M is it's closed off on the bottom, it would go from Shiloh to Shalom, Shin Lamed Mem, and that would indicate peace. But there's no, there's no justification for that. There's no textual variance that would indicate that. That's just a shot in the dark, somebody coming up with a, a pure speculation out of thin air to try to make some sense of the passage, saying like, well, maybe it could be this word. We don't know. It's not based on any kind of evidence. It's just a pure guess. And so really that doesn't have any kind of support uh, whatsoever. Uh, and that's the way it's sort of handled as a proper na name in the New American Standard Bible. That's how they handled that. A second way in which this could be understood is as a place name like Shiloh where the tabernacle was for about 300 to 400 years up in, um, uh, up, in this, up in Samaria. Problem with that is that that location, Shiloh, is never spelled the way this word is spelled here in Genesis uh, 49.10. So that doesn't seem very likely. And usually in the Bible, the convention is for cities to be named after individuals and not for individuals to be named after cities or geographical locations. So that really doesn't have a lot of support for it, but uh, because it looks similar in English, a lot of people think there's some kind of connection there. Third way is that if you just change the vowels, keep the consonants the same, it could be understood to mean to whom tribute will be brought. So in that sense, it would be read, um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until uh, the one to whom tribute will be brought comes. Now that makes some level of sense. In fact, there's not really a strong, uh, a strong argument against it. And the only support for it is the next phrase, the next line has to do with, to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so it's suggested that there's a certain parallelism there 
and that uh, could work. But that translation would require the changing the verb form from the active comes to the passive be brought, and that doesn't, it's never good to get your interpretation by changing the the word forms or introducing new letters in order to make your, your interpretation work. So that really doesn't work either. And the view that is is most often supported uh, in a number of English translations, and as well as the Septuagint and some uh, major uh, not majority text, some Masoretic text uh, uh, manuscripts, is to change it to the it means to whom it belongs. And then, if you were to translate that, nor lawgiver from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs comes. And that is supported, according to a scholar, former president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, Walt Kaiser, who's a great Old Testament scholar, contends that uh, there are 38 Masoretic manuscripts that have this particular reading, as well as a number of uh, targums uh, that go back to the early uh, church age period, 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, targums, Onkelos, Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodosian all have a reference to a later prophecy in Ezekiel uh, 21, 25 to 27. And this is also seen in, um, this is from the not the New American Standard Bible initially, but the NASB 95 translates Ezekiel 21, 27. Uh, talking, it's a prophecy about the loss of the kingship in Judah and then the restoration of it. Uh, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also will be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. And in the Hebrew, the consonants are the same as what the consonants would be in the passage in Genesis 49.10. I didn't hear this interpretation until about 20 years ago when I heard Arnold Fruchtenbaum uh, give it. It is the same position that's held by Michael Rydelnik, who wrote the commentary for Genesis in the Moody Bible Commentary. It's the view that is held in the Dallas Seminary publication, Bible Knowledge Commentary, and a number of uh, modern translations uh, take this same view connecting the two. And so I think it's the, uh, when you look at all the options, study everything out, this is the best solution. That Shiloh there in 49.10 is not talking about a person, it's not a title, for the Messiah, it should be translated until he whose right it is comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, that is the submission of the peoples of the world to the Messiah when he comes to establish his kingdom, which of course occurs at the end of the tribulation period. The fourth way in which uh, Judah will be preeminent is that the future king will be preeminent over uh, every over the world in wealth in their uh, in his wealth and this is indicated in the same statement he'll bind his donkey to the vine now 
if you're going somewhere, you're out in the country, and you're going to tie your horse or your donkey up to something, are you going to tie it to a grapevine? No, you don't want to destroy the grapevine. It's important to keep that grapevine. It's a source of grapes, a source of income. But if you're going to tie your donkey off to a grapevine and the donkey could destroy it, then you're not worried about your grapes or your grapevines because you have such an abundance of it. That's, that's the picture here, is that he doesn't really care about destroying a grapevine because he's got it so much. He's wealthy. He doesn't care if he loses $10. He's got millions of dollars. And so that's the idea here. It's a picture of uh, prosperity. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt. Now, donkey's colt is pretty wild still. Hasn't been tamed. A donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now, I think this is an allusion to what will happen at the end of the, of the uh, tribulation period when the Messiah comes, and we have a picture in Isaiah of him coming from, his, from Basra with his garments stained in blood. And so I think this is also an allusion to that. Um, the trouble I have with that interpretation is, that, you know, what, what you read in the commentaries is this is, continues to illustrate the prosperity uh, which is the context. The first part of 49.11 is talking about prosperity, and 49.12 is talking about his, his health. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, if you go to the Middle East and you're looking at a lot of uh, Israelis, they're dark-skinned, they have dark um, pupils, they have dark irises, and... Uh, it's a contrast with if they're healthy with the white of their eyes. If they're not healthy, then the white white of their eyes is yellowish and murky, and it's not not healthy. And so, uh, this is seen as a metaphor also for for his health, and the clarity of his eyes indicates that. So, forty nine eleven and twelve emphasizes his wealth and his uh, prosperity. So, what we see from this prophecy is what David would have understood. He's a descendant of Judah. He is the one who has been given the promise to be the king. He is the one who is the first in the line of Judah to carry the scepter and to rule over all of Israel. And so he knows that this is God's blessing. This is God's promise. It's based on a prophecy, and God will bring it to pass. And that David doesn't need to force it. He can relax and rest and wait on the Lord and trust in him in order to bring about that which he has promised. And what we see is the backdrop to these lessons in Genesis, I mean, in Second Samuel 2 through 5, is that this illustration that man is trying to solve man's problems man's way. In contrast to David, who is trying to solve man's problems God's way. We think of Saul. He tried to do it his own way. We think of Abner. After the death of Saul, he's trying to bring order, even though he knows, as we saw from his statements in chapter 3, he knows that the promise of God is to make David the king. 
but he still wants to fight that. He wants to establish his own power base in the north, and he wants to be the kingmaker to bring Ishbosheth into power, ultimately so that he then could take over uh, the dynasty in, in the north. So we see this contrast between human viewpoint solutions that always lead to tragic, tragic problems, unintended consequences that disrupt and destroy people's lives and destroy their prosperity, destroy their, uh, their stability. In contrast to David, who's going to be elevated by God, and he is the one who has stability in the south. He has prosperity in, in, um, in Judah, and he's going to unite the tribes and take them to a level that they've never experienced in their history because he is doing it uh, God's way. So we come to the conclusion of this episode in 2 Samuel 4.1, and we read, When Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died, uh, remember uh, he is uh, murdered by Joab and Abishag, uh, not Abishag, Abishai, uh, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart. That means he's totally discouraged, he, he's given up, and all Israel was troubled. And the Hebrew word that is uh, translated troubled there uh, indicates that, that they are in profound fear and anxiety. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. So part of his command structure, he has two commanders. One is named Ba'ana, and the name of the other is Rechav. The sons of Ramon the Erethite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth was also was part of Benjamin, because the Beerothites fled to Gataim and have been sojourners, or um, you know they are uh, legal or resident aliens in the, in the land, uh, have been our uh, le- resident aliens there until this day. Now, the backdrop we have to understand for all of this is the sin nature and what's going to happen. The power lust uh, and approbation lust that's demonstrated by Abner, by Saul, by Ishbosheth is just going to lead to more and more trouble. We see it exemplified in these two men who are bent on revenge, and they're going to continue to create more havoc and chaos in, in, in the north. And as a result, they're going to both lose their lives and be executed as criminals. It's a manifestation of the arrogant skills. Their self-absorption leads them to destruction as they indulge their desires. And like Abner, they're trying to manipulate the situation and take over from God's control. So that's the contrast here. David waits on the Lord. This is what happens when you have various factions who are trying to do it uh, man's way. So it starts off telling us that when Saul heard the word that Joab had uh, assassinated Abner uh, down in Hebron, that he lost heart and Israel was troubled. And that's the word Bahal, which means they're dismayed, terrified. They are, they, their nation's been under the heel of the Philistines for most of the last seven years, they are probably in economic 
total economic collapse. They're in political collapse. There's disorder. There's criminality. All sorts of things are taking place in the north. And now, once they thought there was hope with a king, with Ishbosheth, and now it all falls apart. So now we see further development with these two men, Baana and Rechab. Now, they have a father whose name is Remon, and that's a Canaanite name. And the grandfather's name is uh, Be'eroth, and that too seems to be a Canaanite name. So what we see here, remember, we're just coming out of that period of the Judges, And in the period of the judges, everyone in Israel is doing what's right in their own eyes. They started off good, and then they went into decline, so that from the time of the first judge, Othniel, there were times when they threw off these uh, conquerors that came in and swept through Israel, and when when, uh, after God would discipline them with the conqueror, they would eventually repent, cry out to God, God would give them another judge, that judge would throw off the conquerors, they would go through a short period of prosperity and then repeat the cycle all over again. And so you go through uh, Othniel, you go through Deborah and Barak, you go through Gideon, you go through Jephthah, and you end up with Samson. And Samson's the last judge, and he's not able, I mean in the book of Judges, and he's not able to throw off the enemy. Because the, by the time you get to the end of Judges, the Canaanites, I mean, the, the Israelites are more immoral and more corrupt and more perverted than the Canaanites. They have totally assimilated to that culture. And that's been a problem to this day in the Jewish community is that assimilation to Gentile culture. And so this suggests that these these men have assimilated. They're just like the Israelites during the period of the judges, but they're still called children of Benjamin. Now, the date that we're working with here is probably somewhere around um, 1020 BC, 1010 BC, somewhere in there. So we're about 400 years from the from the conquest. When we look at a map. Of these, uh, of this town, of where they're from, uh, Beeroth, it's said to be and Gatayim. They're said to be part of of um, Benjamin. So let's go back a little bit, just in terms of geography. Here's Jebus. That's the Canaanite, the Jebusites who inhabit Jerusalem. It ha- it's not conquered by David yet. That comes up uh, in the next chapter. They're in Gibeon. Now, the Gibeonites were that group of Canaanites in Joshua that disguised themselves and told Joshua and the Israelites that they were from a distant, distant land, and would they please not destroy them and annihilate them like they've been all these other other, uh, Canaanites. And they lied, but nevertheless... What we're told in the scripture is that Joshua and the Israelites didn't go to the Lord for guidance. They just said, oh, we won't do it. You're not from here. They had made their clothes look old. Oh, our clothes were new when we left, and now they're old and torn up, so we've come a long way. And they bought the deception hook, line, and sinker. And so they they were forced into a uh, a fraudulent contract with the Gibeonites. 
But God said, you signed the deal, you have to honor it, so you have to let them, uh, let them live. Now, this is, if you look at this map, they're very similar. Here's Jerusalem. Just north is Gibeon, which is where the Gibeonites are from. And here in this map, we see here's Be'eroth. It's, it's right there by Gibeon. There were the, all these little towns that are mentioned here are right there. They're part of that Hivite community that was, um, uh, that was allowed to live with, with the Gibeonites. Now, over 400 years, I think there's going to be a lot of, lot of assimilation. So these are probably got a Hivite background, but they've also intermarried with the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe. So they're uh, considered Benjamites. Here's another map. Here is uh, Jerusalem way down here at the bottom. Here's Gibeah of Benjamin. Let's get a little scale there. That's probably about seven miles, okay? It's not that far. I've, it, it's within the modern um, city limits of Jerusalem. And then uh, north of that is Ramah. Who was from Ramah? Samuel. That is where uh, Samuel lived. If you go there today, you'll see a big statue there, memorial for Ramah. And here's Gibeon. So this is just like a couple of miles from Gibeah of Benjamin, Saul's hometown, up here to Gibeon. This is where they had this, the battle where uh, uh, Joshua prays and the sun stands still so they can continue the battle longer and longer into the day. So all of that's involved there. Uh, Gibeon is mentioned a couple of times in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 9. And talks about their uh, their cities were Gibeon, uh, Hepherah, Beroth, which is mentioned in our passage, the Beerothites, and Kiriath Jerim. It's mentioned again in Joshua eighteen twenty five, as we've just seen in the previous map. You have Gibeon, Ramah, Beeroth. Those are all uh, right right in here together. Beeroth is not mentioned. In our, here it is on this map. It's just below Gibeon. So this is where they're from. And we have this background. And all the other cities were told or were destroyed except uh, Gibeon. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle. Now, there's a lot of discussion on this. I think there there may be some revenge motivation here for this this ancient uh, uh, or this. Excuse me, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. The other thing that we run into here when we study this, it's not picked up in First Samuel. It's not mentioned in First Samuel. But if you go down to Second Samuel, and I believe it's down in Second Samuel chapter twenty one. Uh, what you discover is that Saul broke this covenant with the Gibeonites, and he slaughtered a bunch of them. And so there's a hint there that their desire to kill Ishbosheth may be motivated by a desire for revenge on the uh, on Saul's line because Saul had attacked uh, the Gibeonites. The bottom line is it's a soap opera mess. You've got all these people operating on the sin nature, and it, the culture has just deteriorated into civil war and assassinations of, of their key leaders, and everything is uh, completely 
completely falling apart. And we don't exactly know uh, all of the details. Uh, the verse I was looking for earlier, Second Samuel, it is Second Samuel 21, 2 Samuel 21, 4. So, and as we look at the story there, uh, that gives the background, possibly their motivation. And then in verse 4, we're told, just briefly, we're introduced to Jonathan's son, whose name sounds very similar to Ishbosheth, except his name is Mephibosheth. And we're told that he was crippled in his feet, and he was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was uh, Mephibosheth. So the sons of Rimon, the Barathite, Rechav and Ba'anah, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. So he's having his siesta, and they come into the house and they pose as those who are providing supplies for the palace. They're, they drive up in their bread truck, and they're going to go in and get grain, basically. So that's they, they've just got a cover, and they're going to use that to go in, and they uh, strike him in the belly in verse 6, and then they escape. And <clears throat> we're told then more fully, see, typical Hebrew narrative, you get the summary in verse 6. They come in, they stab him in the belly, and then in verse 7 we're told, while he's lying on his bed and they strike him, then they beheaded him. They took off his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. Now, I don't know if I've got a good picture of that on the map here. You want to know where the word Arab comes from? It comes from the term Arabah. Where's the Arabah? The Arabah, here we have Hebron down here. We have Jerusalem here, Bethlehem right in here. Over here we have the Dead Sea. And this area around the Dead Sea, and especially further south, is called the Arabah. So what these guys do is they duck out of, of uh, uh, Mahanaim, and they head down along the valley of the Jordan. This is all the Arabah, all the way down south. And they head down along the Dead Sea until they can cut over uh, through the hills uh, to Hebron. And then they th think that they're going to be welcomed by David. But they don't understand David. David doesn't want any part of anything that smacks of taking the control of the kingdom through illegitimate means. He understands that a right thing done a wrong way is wrong. The end does not justify the means. And so they come to him and they bring the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and say to the king, Look, the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, you ought to reward us. They just think they're going to get all of this praise and they're going to get the Medal of Honor and everything for killing Saul's enemy and taking vengeance on Saul and his descendants. But look at David's answer in verse 9. He answers them, and says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Notice he's so focused on the Lord. God has protected me. I don't need your protection. 
He said, when someone told me that Saul was dead, thinking that they brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. Now, if I'm going to take the life of someone who killed Saul because he had claimed to have executed Saul's, how much more am I going to take your life because you've killed a righteous person? Now, Ishbosheth is is a weak king. He's being used and manipulated by others. But he's never said to be evil. He's not an idolater. He hasn't disobeyed the Lord. We're never told anything really negative uh, about Ishbosheth like we were about Saul and about many, many others. And so David calls him a righteous person. He hasn't done anything wrong. He just hasn't really done anything. He's been used by others. And so David says, Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. He is going to gain the kingdom on the basis of righteousness and obedience to the law. And so he commanded his young men to execute him, to cut off his hands and his feet, which indicates they've been rendered completely uh, impotent. Hands were what you used to carry your weapons. Feet were what was necessary to run into war. And he hanged them by the pool in Hebron, and they took the head of Ishbosheth, which needed to be buried, and they buried it with Abder in Hebron. So he's treated honorably. This brings us to the end of this episode, the civil war with the house of Saul. And then in five one we read, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. And they are going to come to submit to the leadership of David. And so what we see is that God has brought about the unification of the 12 tribes and given the kingdom of David without David having to do anything to make it happen. That doesn't mean he was totally passive. He just sat back. He fulfilled his responsibilities to protect his people and to rule over that which God had given him, whether that was the mighty men when they're in the wilderness being chased by Saul, or whether that's under the small domain of Hebron, or whether that now is going to be over the larger domain of the uh, whole of Israel. And it reminds us of the parable in the New Testament where Jesus concludes, He who is faithful in a little will be given much and will be faithful in much. And so we need to be faithful in the responsibilities that God gives us in a small, whatever way we do in this life. It may be a small way, but we are being prepared to rule in a big way when we come to rule with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom. And so we learn by faithfulness over whatever God gives us today in order to be prepared for what God will give us in the kingdom. Let's bow our heads, close in prayer. Next time we'll come back and we'll look at how uh, David consolidates the kingdom and then we will get into the fact that David is going to capture uh, the city of Jebus and establish his, uh, his capital city in Jerusalem. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. May we be reminded that We're not promoted in anything in life unless you promote us. 
that our responsibility is to walk with you, trust you, learn your word, grow to maturity, develop that capacity, and you are the one who will provide uh, for us, whether it's a little or a lot. But we are to be faithful with whatever you've given us. Father, we pray you challenge us with what we've studied. In Christ's name, amen.